Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Okay, you know what happens now, right? You can't mention there's a song and not sing it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, fine. I will sing it for you. Hey there, and welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. This season, we're talking about power couples or partnerships. And on today's episode, we will talk about Marion Manny Griffin, the first woman licensed in the state of Illinois and one of the first women licensed in the U.S. I'm Lizzie Rahr, thinking of Garrett's Popcorn in San Francisco. I am joined by my fellow co-hosts, Jessica and Nurjiti. I'm Nurjiti Rivas. Dreaming of deep dish pizza in Houston, Texas. I'm Jessica Rogers, thinking about my favorite thing from Chicago, a great Chicago hot dog. And I'm based out of Washington, D.C. All right. Just so you know, everyone, the three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We're just like sharing stories about the information we find about each woman. So if we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us. Leave us a comment. And we will all continue learning. All right. So today, ladies, like I said, we're talking about Marion Manny Griffin, and she is involved in two partnerships that we'll talk about. Ooh, juicy. That's very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Our story starts in Chicago, if you didn't catch that from the beginning, (laughs) on Valentine's Day in 1871. Marion Lucy Manny was born. She was the second of what would be five children. Her parents were Jeremiah and Claire Hamilton Manny. Her dad was an Irish poet, educator, and journalist, and her mother was a teacher. Eight months after she was born, the Great Chicago Fire happened. Do you guys know anything about the fire? Yeah, we mentioned it during Frances Perkins episode 28. Ooh, yeah. So, yes, to Frances Perkins, but I also remember coming across this when we studied about egress and fire safety. This fire was one of those pivotal moments in the building industry. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's also a children's song that I always think about when anyone mentions the fire. I learned it as a kid. No idea when. 
but it talks about how the fire was allegedly started by the O'Leary's cow tipping over a lantern. So you're telling me that a cow started the Chicago fire? (laughs) I believe it. Why not? (laughs) So it was never confirmed. And actually, the O'Leary's said that they were in bed before the fire started. But the legend spread so substantially that it's still very ingrained in local lore, even though it's not likely how it actually started. This fire burned for about three days. It killed 300 people and destroyed about 17,000 structures and left 10,000 people homeless. Wow. And all like jokes aside, that's crazy. Crazy. Yeah, how terrible. I know. And I didn't find something that specifically said the Mayonnaise house burned down, but many resources say that Marion's mother carried her as a baby in a clothes basket away from the fire. And after the fire, the family moved north of the city to what at that time was a more rural area. Today, it's a wealthy suburb of Chicago called Winnetka. I'm happy to hear that they survived that. I couldn't imagine living in a city with all of that smoke. And I can only imagine how much of a refuge it must have been to just be somewhere rural. Yeah, Marion loved nature. They were right along Lake Michigan and they got to explore all over the area. And she wrote about it saying, in the loveliest spot you can imagine within a mile in any direction. Our home was at the head of a lovely ravine, a half mile walk through the beautiful forest to the east took us to the shores of Lake Michigan with bluffs 50 feet high and a wide sandy beach. To the west, half a mile through scrub to the marvelous Skokie, headwaters of the Chicago River, stretching for endless miles. That sounds lovely. It'd be nice to visit. I wonder if it's still like that. Hmm. Yeah, probably more uh, suburban now, Mm. I would guess. But, But who knows? Now, I found some conflicting sources on the order of events in these next pieces, but around the time Marion was 11 or 12, two things happened. Her father died and their family home in Winnetka burned down. Oh my gosh. Man, I hope a cow didn't cause this fire too. Or, well, alleged cow. But it's awful, regardless of the cause. Yeah, what's up with this lady's childhood and fire? It feels like a bad omen or foreshadowing of some sort. What's (laughs) What's going to happen? Right? Yeah. I mean, it was not a great time for the Mannies. So Marion's mother and the five kids moved back to Chicago, where her mom got a teaching position at a local school and her grandmother and Aunt Myra moved in with them to help with all of the kids. We don't talk about this, you know, the women that had to have help when it comes to raising their children. This is refreshing. Yeah. And they were apparently pretty raucous and outspoken. (laughs) The teachers apparently were very relieved once they'd had the last Manny get through their class. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. So Marion's mother surrounded the family with many strong women, it sounds like. She joined the Chicago Women's Club and was in with all the female activists fighting for women's suffrage. According to one source, Abraham Lincoln stopped by occasionally to visit with her mother's side of the family. Ooh. This reminds me of Minette de Silva, episode 17, and their family friends, Gandhi and Prime Minister Nehru. You know, <laughs> our ladies and their family connections. Totally no cash. Totally cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or Jane Adams and how her... Didn't Lincoln call her dad Double D Adams? That's Isn't right. That where that came from? <laughs> 
was just thinking that one too. <laughs> yeah. Well, so while they were living in Chicago, Marion also was exposed to architecture through her cousin, who was an architect, Dwight Held Perkins. He had studied architecture at MIT, so it would make sense that this might have been what led Marion to attend MIT and study architecture as well. A family friend, Mary Hawes Wilmerth, and her daughter, Anna Wilmerth Ikes, actually funded her study at MIT and helped her study for the entrance exams. Future episodes alert. She was the second woman to graduate with an architecture degree from MIT in 1894. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. Her thesis was called The House and Studio of a Painter where she connected a workplace to a suburban home. It reminded me of our freshman studio final project. I actually think I had the painter as my client for that one. Ah, memories. I had the swimmer. It was such a fun time. In this project, we got to choose our client, which could include either a painter, a swimmer, a musician, a dancer, a scientist type. And then I think there was also the chess player. I don't remember that at all. Freshman year, first semester <laughs> studio. So Nothing. understandable. Nothing. She's blocked it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently the reason Marion chose this thesis is that she maybe wasn't very confident in her architectural abilities. She wrote that she, quote, rebelled and told the head of the architecture department, I couldn't do that sort of thing, that perhaps I wasn't an architect. He said, well, wasn't there something I would be interested to do? And I said, well, domestic work was the only thing that appealed to me. And he said, well, do the home of an architect, but doll it up a bit. So I did. There is so much to unpack there. Rebelled, domestic work. But um, Marion, get a girl. Yeah, I don't know what to do with that quote. So <laughs> congrats on graduating, Marion. Yes. Yeah, I know. There's a lot. But <laughs> Go you, girl. Go, go you. She liked houses. That's really what you need to know. So. Alrighty. <laughs> there you, you go. You do you. You do you. That's right. So Marion traveled in Europe after school. And when she arrived back in the States, she listed herself at immigration as Marion Mayany architect. Yeah. So it seems like she was more confident on her return. Hmm. I don't know. The article I read was saying that for the time it was quite bold and shows that she was serious about it. And I think that it shows her outspoken personality that many commented on. Good for you, Marion. Believe in yourself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Europe must have been very transformative for her. Yeah. So after her travels, she went to work for her cousin Dwight in the loop of downtown Chicago as a drafter. His office was in the Steinway Hall, a building with several other architects. And after she worked there for two years, she was hired as the very first employee of one Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, how interesting that Frank's first employee was a woman. I like this. Yeah. Now let's get into this tea. <laughs> Why they gotta be tea, Jessica? Maybe that was... I'm looking for the tea. <laughs> okay. She's always on the lookout. I'm always on the lookout. Love me some mess. <laughs> so Marion became Frank's right hand and part of developing the prairie school aesthetic, which he would become so famous for. While she was working for him, she really developed her distinct rendering style. Okay, ladies, if you can think of any of the well-known Frank Lloyd Wright renderings of his houses, those were drawn by Marion, most likely. That sounds amazing. And a uh, hello. 
Okay, renderings are basically the money shots of a project, which means that Marion was responsible for the money shots. And of course, this is barely ever mentioned in conversations of Frank's work. Mm. And actually, I don't even remember ever hearing her name until Lizzie mentioned she wanted to share her story. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so Barry Byrne was another employee at Wright's office. And he said that Marion was the most talented member of Frank Lloyd Wright's staff. And I doubt that the studio then or later produced anyone superior. I know that's right. Again, why haven't we heard or learned more about her before? Hmm. I know. And Barry also talked about how Wright would have these charrettes or competitions within the office to design various things like like murals, mosaics, furnishings, etc. And Barry said that Marion won most of the competitions. Of course and she did. Frank would get upset when anyone talked about them as Miss Mayonnaise design if the work appeared later in any commissions that they did. Here we go. Here's the mess. <laughs> <laughs> You called it. (laughs) Thus, history buries her contributions and stories. Tell us more, Lizzie. So in 1898, Marion took the new Illinois Architects Licensing Exam and passed, making her the first woman licensed in Illinois and one of the first licensed female architects in the U.S. Yeah. Okay. so another thing. Frank was actually not a licensed architect and hadn't finished college even, and possibly not even high school? Sources are kind of fuzzy on that. Hmm. Hmm. Show them who's boss, Marion. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So Marion was known for her wit, her loud laugh, and for refusing to bow to Wright's ego. Barry said she was a good actress, talkative, and when around Wright, there was a real sparkle. He said that, When she was in the office, it promised an amusing day. Ah, Nice. So although Frank had that capital A architect kind of personality, it does sound like Marion got along with him well and with his wife, Catherine, nicknamed Kitty, whom she was really close with. So for those who don't know the story, in 1909, Frank leaves his wife, Kitty, and his six children Mm. and runs off to Europe with the wife of one of his clients. Mama Borthwick Cheney. And when the news finally came out, the Chicago Tribune headline read, Leave Families Elope to Europe. Ooh, okay, drama. So wait, Marion and Frank, they just had a professional partnership. Yeah, sounds like it. He was too busy with the other women. Right. They never (laughs) had a romantic relationship. But needless to say, this is when Marion's relationship with Wright starts to sour. I mean, she was super good friends with his wife and she got left behind to console Kitty after he ran off to Berlin. Mm -hmm. Also, if you want to read more about that story, I recommend the book Loving Frank, which is written from Mama's perspective. It's very good. So the other woman wrote the book. You know, we really need a show about this type of stuff. I would watch. Yep. (laughs) I mean, yes. So it's written from her perspective. It's not actually written by her. So when Frank up and leaves... He hired Herman von Holst to take over all his projects that he left unfinished. Hmm. Herman agreed to take it on under one condition that Marion would join him. He said, I had engaged Miss Manny to work in my office as I could not carry on Wright's work without her help. I also read that Frank had initially asked Marion to take over, but she turned it down, which sounds like 
maybe a smart move because it sounds like a lot of the projects were paid for up front. So they were kind of, you know, <laughs> working oh, after freeze. and he took the money so and then Fred, they yeah, were just working on it to finish money. it. Like, I'm not really sure. <laughs> to go but mm. It sounds like a hot mess that Marion was right to not take charge of. It's like, ah, mm. uh, hell no. Nah. Yeah. She wrote about that time in her unpublished memoir called The Magic of America and said, when the absent architect didn't bother to answer anything that was sent over to him, the relations were broken. I totally get that. But I think it must have been something more personal for her, too. Sure, she probably wanted to see the projects through to completion, but to become the face of projects from the architect that abandons his family? No, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she worked at Frank's studio for 14 years. And she also did several projects of her own, including All Souls Church in Evanston, several homes in Decatur, an unbuilt home for Henry Ford in Dearborn, and the Amberg House in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay, big names. I can't wait to see those on our show notes. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Do you guys remember when we went to see the Meyer May House by Frank in Grand Rapids during college? Of course. So, yeah. So the Amberg house is actually two blocks away. And I think we might have driven past it and pointed it out when we were there. But anyway, I looked it up to see if I could tour it when I went home over Christmas or like another time. And apparently there's a guest suite in the basement of the house and it's an Airbnb. So we might need to go back to Michigan. Just saying. Hells yeah. And I totally remember that tour. It was so cool. And listeners, we will probably include some photos of us there on social media. So be sure to check those out. Well, the Amberg House is an arc venture that we have to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I have a small gripe with the host of the Airbnb. Mm. Because it is advertised as a Frank Lloyd Wright original. Mm-mm. Nuh-uh. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Nope. Come on. We got to write them a letter. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. They do mention Marion as well, like in the description. But the title just says, like, stay in a Frank Lloyd Wright house, you know. And I did do a little bit more research. Apparently, Frank was originally the one who was commissioned to design the house in 1909. But this was one of those projects that he, you know, got the commission and then ran off to Europe. And so Marion is the one who actually like completed the project. So I suppose he's connected to it. But let's be honest. Marion did all the work, right? Yeah. Mm-mm. I'm telling you, we should write them a letter. Yes. I know. I know. We'll have to go stay there. And then when we tour the house upstairs, we can tell them. <laughs> Tell them about themselves. Leave the letter. By the way. (laughs) When they're like, this is a house designed by famous Frank Lloyd Wright. Wrong. Mary Manning Griffin. Let me stop you right there. Let me stop you you right there. Your facts are wrong. I'm going to let you finish. But you wrong. But. (laughs) Okay. Another thing about Marion and Frank, though. While Frank is off in Berlin... He published the Wasmuth Portfolio in 1910. This was a collection of his works. And honestly, this is what made him world famous and considered an architectural genius. But guess whose renderings make up almost half of the drawings in that portfolio? Oh, who could it be? 
Our girl Marion. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yep. So while Frank might show up again here and there in our story, we're coming to the end of Marion's first partnership and we're going to move into the second. Oh. Okay. Introducing Walter Burley Griffin. Walter was an architect who had gone to the University of Illinois and was also licensed in Illinois. He started working at Frank's studio in 1901. He loved gardens and did a lot of the landscaping for Frank's projects. A few years later, Walter and Frank got into an argument and Walter left. But when Frank left and went to Germany, Marion convinced Herman to hire Walter back. Hello, Walter. <laughs> ah, here's where Marion meets her Griffin. And remember, she liked nature and stuff and his love of gardens and landscapes. Man, these two are just two buds in a garden. But continue, Lizzie. Yes. Long story short, Marion and Walter started hanging out, going on canoe trips, and then they got married in 1911. Yeah. OMG, canoe trips? That sounds like such a Marion date. <laughs> right? She was 40 years old at the time, and he was five years younger. Oh, She wrote nice. about their relationship, right? Okay. She wrote about their relationship saying, when I encountered Walter Burley Griffin, I was first swept off my feet by my delight in his achievements in my profession. Then through a common bond of interests in nature and intellectual pursuits. And then with the man himself, it was by no means a case of love at first sight, but it was a madness when it struck. Oh, cute. Oh, it was so meant to be. Yeah. She was so enamored with Walter, and she spent most of the rest of her career supporting his career and pushing him forward. She said, truly, I lost myself in him and found it completely satisfying. One article I read made an interesting point saying it may seem disappointing to us now that she willingly chose a subservient role. But for the era, Marion had the best of both worlds. Unlike other female colleagues, Griffin didn't fade into obscurity once she got married. But unlike trailblazing architect Julia Morgan, she had a partner in her life, both professionally and personally. Okay, shade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a little shade there, but that statement gives us a lot to think about. I'm definitely disappointed that she took such a secondary role, and I wonder how different her story would be if she hadn't. But I do need to remember that this was 1911, and she probably did get lucky in the sense that she married someone with whom she could continue to practice and develop her professional career. I don't know. What do you think? Maybe she was enamored enough that she wanted to support someone more than herself, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. My initial thought is I'm sad that she took a back seat, but at the same time, maybe that's what she wanted to do. And if she was happy with that, you know, and doing good work, then I don't know. I can't fault her for that. But it's hard to know if she felt like she should take a back seat because of society or if she truly just preferred that role and really wanted to support someone she loved, like Jessica said. Yeah, I guess we'll never know what really happened. But that Julia Morgan bit was a bit uncalled for. Like, what is she trying to say? That Marion beat Julia in life because Julia didn't marry? It's not for everyone, okay? We all have our own life journeys and Julia had all she needed. Sorry, I just needed to say that. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Nojiri, because some people can be married and have careers and some choose not to get married. And that's okay. Also, side note, I think Marion 
she was 40 when she married the dude. Maybe she was tired. She didn't want to like be a boss lady and just take, you know, second seat. But anyway. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. It's all yeah. good. It's, she did what she did. She did what she That's did. That's right. So, Lizzie, what happens next? So the Griffins opened their own firm in Chicago and they were very busy. Meanwhile, Australia has been talking about holding a design competition to design the urban plan for their new capital city, Canberra, for many years. And Walter has been waiting for it to finally happen because he wants to enter. So in May of 1911, they finally announced the competition, the requirements, and the January 1912 deadline. So after all this time, Walter is procrastinating about whether to enter the competition or not and worried about managing the scale of it. Seriously? I bet you Marion did something about that. <laughs> you? Oh, yeah. Marion wasn't having any of that. She pushed him to do it in typical Marion fashion and said, for the love of Mike, when are you going to get started on those capital plans? How much time do you think there is left anyway? Perhaps you can design a city in two days, but the drawings take time and that falls on me. Perhaps I am the swiftest draftsman in town, but I can't do the impossible. What's the use of thinking about a thing like this for 10 years if when the time comes, you don't get it done in time? Ooh, triggered. <laughs> okay, so as a drafter, once upon a time, I feel very triggered, waiting on ideas and changes up until the last minute. But you're the one that has to make all of the drawings. Ooh, triggered. Totally triggered. Trigger warning. This sounds like typical client shenanigans to me. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it also sounds like Walter was a little scared. <laughs> mm -hmm. I like that Marion was like, don't be a little chicken, yo wuss. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, with the help of other architect friends and family, they finished all of the drawings on New Year's Eve of 1911 and got the drawings on the last ship out to Australia. Yeah, thanks to Marion. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Talk about down to the wire, though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Literally, like... I know. <laughs> so the design package included many renderings that were done by Marion, who had never been to Australia, but it was said that she captured the essence of the area and the landscape and that these renderings are likely a huge reason why the Griffins won the commission to design the city of Canberra. Oh, yeah. They actually beat out Eliel Saarinen, who was in second place. Oh, Eliel Saarinen. Well, we're going to talk about this guy a lot more this season, so stay tuned. Just know it was a big deal that Marion beat Eliel. Mm -hmm. Yes. It was a huge deal that they won the competition, and it became worldwide news. Right after it was announced, two Australian women, Miles Franklin and Alice Henry, they happened to be in Chicago visiting Hull House. Oh. Mm -hmm. And so they decided to stop by the Griffin studio to see the architects who had won the competition to design their new capital city. They wrote an article about it in the Sydney Daily Telegraph. And they were the only newspaper story that noted Marion was also an architect. Yeah, women supported women. They knew what was up. Mm -hmm. Gotta love that. Also, listeners, check out episode 23, Jane Double D Adams, Ew. to learn more about the Hull House. But yeah, glad it was mentioned somewhere that Marion was also an architect and the award-winning project that wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for her. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm. Well, Frank also had a thing or two to say about the fact that they won this competition. Uh, he, sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just, I know this guy. I know. 
(laughs) (laughs) He told everyone that he thought their work was second rate and said that Walter was just a draftsman and stealing his designs. Because of these comments, Marion held a pretty strong hatred of Frank for the rest of her life. (laughs) Frank sounds like a hater to me. You know he is. He's a silly little hater. (laughs) Didn't he hate on another lady? Yeah, I think it was Nobuko. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was Nobuko. Frank Mm. sounds like a little narcissist. And when it's not about him, it's no good. Mm. Whatever. Poop face. I knew it was going to be bad. I'm sorry, Lucy. (laughs) Mess. It just sucks. No worries. Mess. So in May of 1914, the Griffins moved to Australia. They lived in Melbourne at first while Walter oversaw the construction of Canberra, which sounds like it was really tough and didn't end up being built as they had drawn it. I think some of it was too expensive for one thing, but it also sounds like some people didn't want to take orders from an American architect Mm. and, you know, stubborn builders. On top of this, World War One had just broken out. So a lot of money was being rerouted to the war effort instead of construction. Mm, Yeah. Tough times all around. Mm -mm. Yeah. Walter actually stepped back from the project in 1920. And even though the design ended up being much different than they thought, they're still credited with the design of the city. And it sounds like they're quite well known in Australia. Australian listeners, let us know if that's true. But that's what I heard from somebody from Canberra. So so while they were trying to figure out the Canberra situation, they had their own private firm in Australia and Marion was managing the office. Even though Walter was done with Canberra, they decided to stay in Australia and keep working. In 1921, they designed the town of Castle Craig outside of Sydney and the Capitol Theater in Melbourne in 1924. This couple was real fancy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So at this point, Marion spent more time working on artistic pursuits and social causes. She did a lot of documentation of Australia's plant life and her role in the office ebbed and flowed. It's cool that she had a chance to develop other talents and interests. Yeah. In 1935, Walter went to India to design the Lucknow University Library. Marion came with him later and helped manage the office they opened there and to create working drawings and renderings of this project and several others, such as the United Provinces Industrial and Agricultural Exhibition and the Lucknow's Pioneer Press Building. They so fancy. (laughs) We already know they're in the fast lane from Canberra to Lucknow. (laughs) (laughs) well in february 1937 walter suddenly died of peritonitis after he had surgery for a burst gallbladder Ooh, this took a turn sure did Mm -hmm. oh yeah so at first marion was going to stay in india to finish all of the projects but the partner at their sydney firm asked her to go back there and help finish things up in that office since she was the executor of his will So she closed the India office and returned to Australia. She was there for about a year, settling affairs, and then she actually returned to Chicago. Aw, man, I wish she would have stayed and kicked ass in India and Australia. But also the love of her life just died, so perhaps that affected things, maybe? Mm. Yeah, it seems like it. Back in the States, she did keep doing some design work and lecturing, but not too much. And she also wrote an unpublished autobiography of her and Walter's life together that I mentioned before, The Magic of America. It's online now, so anyone can access it through the Art Institute of Chicago's website. (gasps) Ooh, can you put a link to that in our show notes? Mm, Yeah. Of course. 
Okay. She wrote in the memoir, women should continue to enter the architectural profession and they should be willing to do so as equals of men, putting up with the same sacrifices and physical challenges as men do without expecting special concessions. It doesn't matter whether an architect was a man or a woman as long as she could do the job. Okay. All right. I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, listeners. I wish you could see Jessica's face. (laughs) I mean, this is not the first time we hear one of our ladies making a comment like this. Yeah. I wonder Mm -hmm. what was happening at the time. What women were out there asking for special treatment. It sounds to me like the only special treatment they were asking for was to be recognized for their work and efforts. Mm-hmm. Okay, wait a minute. Do you think that maybe they just needed to say things like this to even be heard by men? Like, were they just playing the game? <laughs> I think she was reminding folks, <coughs> cough men, that women can be architects too. But maybe that women shouldn't expect extra praise because they're doing the same work as men. I mean, I've heard women say things like, why do I have to be referred to as a female architect? I'm just an architect, period. I think maybe Marion is saying something similar. Yeah. So the more we hear this from women during this, especially I feel like a lot of times they're during this kind of time period, right? Early right. 1900s and that kind of thing. The more I think that it's kind of what you're saying, Nergity, that maybe they're playing the game a little bit and that they were trying to not stand out and make a big deal over being a woman because society saw it as controversial. So they were just trying to make it seem normal and commonplace, right? Not saying I think that's how it should be, but I think that they felt that was the best way forward for more women to be able to get into the profession and succeed was to just make it seem like no big deal. You know, we're just the same as a man architect, you know, no need to get your knickers in a twist or something. (laughs) Yeah, I see both your points. If only we had a time machine and could go verify what they meant. (laughs) Maybe if we meet them in heaven, we can bring this up. Yeah, get the true tea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Marion died on August 19, 1961. She was 90 years old and penniless. What? Mm. I know. I don't really have much more info on that, but every article I read said she had no money. Mm. So at first, her ashes were put in an unmarked grave because it was labeled a pauper's death. But later, her family gave permission for her ashes to be moved to the Chicago Architects Cemetery, Graceland, where she is with other well-known architects like Daniel Burnham, Louis Sullivan, John Root, and Mies van der Rohe. I didn't know architects had their own cemetery. When they Me got either. it like that. We should have <laughs> gone there when we visited. That would be cool. That's what Chicago's about, apparently. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe that she was penniless. How could this be after all the fancy work she was involved with? I know. But at least someone got involved and now she rests where she belongs with the great architects of her time. Yeah. What a crazy story. I'm so happy. I finally learned her story and amazed that all she did, how important she was for these men's careers and how sad that they overshadowed her so much. Yeah. It's so sad to hear that she was penniless. It does make me wonder that if she hadn't supported these men and been more about her own work, that maybe she wouldn't seem like all alone at the end. I don't know. Just a thought. 
But I love that she is now physically amongst the Chicago greats. And I love that we get to tell her full story, not just these fellows that she is annoyingly connected to, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Let's pause for a quick word from our sponsors. Yeah, that's right. We got sponsors now. Monograph is building a community of firm owners and operation leaders who are looking for solutions that align with their firm's values. Also, they're building the only cloud-based practice operation software built exclusively for architects by architects. Monograph's easy-to-use and beautifully designed software allows you and your teams to know in near real time whether you are on pace to deliver a project on budget. With Monograph, you and your team can plan project schedules, budgets, and assign roles for team members all in one place. Track a project's financial health with their unique Money Gantt, which takes your team's time and makes it simple to see whether you're on track for financial success. And use their firm-wide revenue forecast to make important strategic decisions. The best part of Monograph? It doesn't require a degree in finance to use. To experience the difference today, sign up for a free trial at monograph.com. Check this out. From March 8th through March 10th, Monograph will be hosting Section Cut, a virtual conference. Here, they'll bring firm owners, operations, and project leaders together to learn from success stories and workshops how to improve their business. There's even going to be an all-day virtual career fair where employers pitch their firms. You can register today to reserve a seat by visiting sectioncut.com or check out our show notes for a link. Yeah, be sure to check out that link and head on over to the Section Cut virtual conference. Our homegirls and fellow podcasters, Evelyn Lee and Janine Chastain from Practice Disrupted will be speaking there. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Now back to our show. All right. Before we leave you, we have to tell you who our karyotid is for this week's episode. Jessica. Can you remind us what a karyatid is? But of course, a karyatid, you know, is that stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek style building. Now, at each episode, we'll choose a karyatid, a woman that is working today, furthering the profession through their work and who ties into the story of the woman of our episode. All right. Without further ado, this week's karyatid is... Lindsay Claire. Lindsay Claire is one half of Claire Design. She and her husband, Carrie, started their firm in 1979 on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. They worked there for about 20 years before they got asked by the New South Wales government architect to be the very first design directors of the government department. Mm. Can you imagine that the governor calls you to run a department? Like, how cool is that? (laughs) Right. So this reminds me of in the States, how we have the architect of the Capitol, Um, the architect of the Capitol. For those of you who don't know, it's a position that gets appointed by the president. And it's actually it could be like a lifelong um, position. So. The architect of the Capitol, typically they're the ones that are responsible for all the Capitol and government federal buildings 
in the U.S. Capitol and perhaps throughout the United States. Right now, it's not like they're designing new federal buildings, but now the job for the architect of the Capitol, or at least one of the jobs, is the restoration of um, the existing buildings and making sure that they're all meets code and are sustainable yeah. and all of that. So it's an interesting oh, cool. position. Yeah. So I think the government architect who... Um, gave them this job is sort of that kind of a position, like the mm. architect of the Capitol. Mm. And so they were in charge of designing things for that department. And they moved to Sydney and worked in that role for two years. They were also adjunct professors at the University of Sydney from 1998 to 2005. And in 2000, Lindsay and Carrie founded Architecta Sydney and were the design directors there for 10 years. They currently have offices in the Sunshine Coast, Gold Coast, and in Sydney. And Lindsay and Carrie were joint recipients of the Australian Institute of Architects Gold Medal in 2010. Oh my gosh, ladies, we got to go to Australia and meet these people. They sound like rock stars. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And I loved that they got the gold medal together. It was giving me, you know, Denise Scott Brown Venturi vibes or whatever, but like, you know, on the good side, (laughs) you know. Congrats. Hashtag power couple. That's right. Okay, before we say goodbye, we want to say thank you to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer, and most of all, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Marion and Lindsay along with our banter and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, thank you. She Builds Podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, and Gable Media is all about building a better world. If this sounds right up your alley, which it probably should, listen and subscribe <laughs> to all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L Media.com. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, your drafters, your 3D renderers, your hot dog vendors, your Chicago deep dish provider, your mama and your pawpaws, and tell them to give us five stars on iTunes. Write us a review, and this will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We are excited to hear from you and for you to keep coming back and learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com, leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuildspodcast and on Twitter at shebuildspod. Bye. 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 One dark night when we were all in bed, Mrs. O'Leary left a lantern in the shed. And when the cow kicked it over, she winked her eye and said, it'll be a hot time in the old town tonight. Fire, fire, fire. Fire, 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 fire. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. 
where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.